This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Souls of Black Folk by W. E. B. Du Bois. Music and Text Recorded by Toria's Uncle. Chapter 8, Part 2. The direct result of this system is an all cotton scheme of agriculture and the continued bankruptcy of the tenant. The currency of the black belt is cotton. It is a crop always saleable for ready money, not usually subject to great yearly fluctuations in price, and one which the Negroes know how to raise. The landlord, therefore, demands his rent in cotton, and the merchant will accept mortgages on no other crop. There is no use asking the black tenant, then, to diversify his crops. He cannot, under this system. Moreover, the system is bound to bankrupt the tenant. I remember once meeting a little one-mule wagon on the river road. A young black fellow sat in it, driving listlessly, his elbows on his knees. His dark-faced wife sat beside him, stolid, silent. "'Hello!' cried my driver. He has a most imprudent way of addressing these people, though they seem used to it. "'What have you got there?' "'Meat and meal,' answered the man, stopping. The meat lay uncovered in the bottom of the wagon, a great thin side of fat pork covered with salt. The meal was in a white bushel bag. "'What did you pay for that meat? Ten cents a pound?' "'It could have been bought for six or seven cents cash. "'And the meal?' Two dollars.' "'One dollar and ten cents is the cash price in town.' Here was a man paying five dollars for goods which he could have bought for three dollars cash, and raised for one dollar or one dollar and a half. Yet it is not wholly his fault. The negro farmer started behind, started in debt. This was not his choosing, but the crime of this happy-go-lucky nation which goes blundering along with its reconstruction tragedies, its Spanish war interludes, and Philippine matinees just as though God really were dead. Once in debt, it is no easy matter for a whole race to emerge. In the year of low-priced cotton, 1898, out of 300 tenant families, 175 ended their year's work in debt to the extent of $14,000. Fifty cleared nothing, and the remaining 75 made a total profit of $1,600. The net indebtedness of the black tenant families of this whole county must have been at least $6,000. In a more prosperous year the situation is far better, but on the average the majority of tenants end the year even or in debt, which means that they work for board and clothes. Such an economic organization is radically wrong. Whose is the blame? The underlying causes of this situation are complicated but discernible and one of the chief, outside the carelessness of the nation in letting the slaves start with nothing, is the widespread opinion among the merchants and employers of the black belt that only by the slavery of debt can the negro be kept at work. Without doubt some pressure was necessary at the beginning of the free labor system to keep the listless and lazy at work, and even today 
the mass of the Negro laborers need stricter guardianship than most northern laborers. Behind this honest and widespread opinion, dishonesty and cheating of the ignorant laborers have a good chance to take refuge, and to all this must be added the obvious fact that a slave ancestry and a system of unrequited toil has not improved the efficiency or temper of the mass of black laborers. Nor is this peculiar to Sambo. It has in history been just as true of John and Hans, of Jacques and Pat, of all ground-down peasantries. Such is the situation of the mass of the Negroes in the Black Belt today, and they are thinking about it. Crime and a cheap and dangerous socialism are the inevitable results of this pondering. I see now that ragged black man sitting on a log aimlessly whittling a stick he muttered to me with the murmur of many ages when he said, White man sit down a whole year, nigger work day and night and make crop. Nigger hardly gets bread and meat. White man sitting down gets all. is wrong. And what do the better classes of Negroes do to improve their situation? One of two things. If any way possible, they buy land. If not, they migrate to town. Just as centuries ago it was no easy thing for the serf to escape into the freedom of town life, even so today there are hindrances laid in the way of county laborers. In considerable parts of all the Gulf states, and especially in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Arkansas, the Negroes on the plantations in the back country districts are still held at forced labor practically without wages. Especially is this true in districts where the farmers are composed of the more ignorant class of poor whites and the Negroes are beyond the reach of schools and intercourse with their advancing fellows. If such a peon should run away, the sheriff, elected by white suffrage, can usually be depended on to catch the fugitive, return him, and ask no questions. If he escapes to another county, a charge of petty thieving, easily true, can be depended on to secure his return. Even if some unduly officious person insist upon a trial, neighborly comity will probably make his conviction sure, and then the labor due the county can easily be bought by the master. Such a system is impossible in the more civilized parts of the South, or near the large towns and cities, but in those vast stretches of land beyond the telegraph and the newspaper, the spirit of the Thirteenth Amendment is sadly broken. This represents the lowest economic depths of the black American peasant, and in a study of the rise and condition of the Negro freeholder, we must trace his economic progress from the modern serfdom. Even in the better-ordered country districts of the South, the free movement of agricultural laborers is hindered by the migration agent laws. The Associated Press recently informed the world of the arrest of a young white man in southern Georgia who represented the Atlantic Naval Supplies Company, and who was caught in the act of enticing hands from the turpentine farm of Mr. John Greer. The crime for which this young man was arrested is taxed $500 for each county in which the employment agent proposes to gather laborers for work outside the state. Thus the Negro's ignorance of the labor market outside his own vicinity is increased, rather than diminished, by the laws of nearly every southern state. Similar to such measures is the unwritten law of the back districts and small towns of the South, 
that the character of all Negroes unknown to the mass of the community must be vouched for by some white man. This is really a revival of the old Roman idea of the patron under whose protection the new-made freedman was put. In many instances this system has been of great good to the Negro, and very often, under the protection and guidance of the former master's family or other white friends, the freedman progressed in wealth and morality. But the same system has in other cases resulted in the refusal of whole communities to recognize the right of a Negro to change his habitation and to be master of his own fortunes. A black stranger in Baker County, Georgia, for instance, is liable to be stopped anywhere on the public highway and made to state his business to the satisfaction of any white interrogator. If he fails to give a suitable answer, or seems too independent or sassy, he may be arrested or summarily driven away. Thus it is that in the country district of the South, by written or unwritten law, peonage, hindrances to the migration of labor, and a system of white patronage exists over large areas. Besides this, the chance for lawless oppression and illegal exactions is vastly greater in the country than in the city, and nearly all the more serious race disturbances of the last decade have arisen from disputes in the count between master and man, as, for instance, the Sam Hose affair. As a result of such a situation, there arose, first, the black belt, and second, the migration to town. The black belt was not, as many assumed, a movement toward fields of labor under more genial climatic conditions. It was primarily a huddling for self-protection, a massing of the black population for mutual defense in order to secure the peace and tranquility necessary to economic advance. This movement took place between emancipation and 1880 and only partially accomplished the desired results. The rush to town since 1880 is the counter-movement of men disappointed in the economic opportunities of the Black Belt. In Doherty County, Georgia, one can see easily the results of this experiment in huddling for protection. Only 10% of the adult population was born in the county, and yet the blacks outnumber the whites four or five to one. There is undoubtedly a security to the blacks in their very numbers, a personal freedom from arbitrary treatment which makes hundreds of laborers cling to Doherty in spite of low wages and economic distress. But a change is coming. And slowly but surely, even here the agricultural laborers are drifting to town and leaving the broad acres behind. Why is this? Why do not the Negroes become landowners and build up the black landed peasantry? which has for a generation and more been the dream of philanthropist and statesman. To the car-window sociologist, to the man who seeks to understand and know the South by devoting the few leisure hours of a holiday trip to unraveling the snarl of centuries, to such men very often the whole trouble with the black field hand may be summed up by Aunt Ophelia's word. Shiftless. They have noted repeatedly scenes like one I saw last summer. We were riding along the highway to town at the close of a long hot day. A couple of young black fellows passed us in a mule team with several bushels of loose corn in the ear. One was driving, listlessly bent forward, his elbows on his knees, a happy-go-lucky, careless picture of irresponsibility. The other was fast asleep in the bottom of the wagon. As we passed, we noticed an ear of corn fall from the wagon. 
they never saw it, not they. A rod farther on we noted another ear on the ground, and between that creeping mule and town we counted twenty-six ears of corn. Shiftless? Yes, the personification of shiftlessness. And yet follow those boys. They are not lazy. Tomorrow morning they'll be up with the sun. They work hard when they do work, and they work willingly. They have no sordid, selfish, money-getting ways, but rather a fine disdain for mere cash. They'll loaf before your face and work behind your back with good-natured honesty. They'll steal a watermelon and hand you back your lost purse intact. Their great defect as laborers lies in their lack of incentive beyond the mere pleasure of physical exertion. They are careless because they have not found that it pays to be careful. They are improvident because the improvident ones of their acquaintance get on about as well as the provident. Above all, they cannot see why they should take unusual pains to make the white man's land better, or to fatten his mule, or save his corn. On the other hand, the white landowner argues that any attempt to improve these laborers by increased responsibility, or higher wages, or better homes, or land of their own, would be sure to result in failure. He shows his northern visitor the scarred and wretched land, the ruined mansions, the worn-out soil and mortgaged acres, and says, This is Negro freedom. Now, it happens that both master and man have just enough argument on their respective sides to make it difficult for them to understand each other. The Negro dimly personifies in the white man all his ills and misfortunes. If he is poor, it is because the white man seizes the fruit of his toil. If he is ignorant, it is because the white man gives him neither time nor facilities to learn. And indeed, if any misfortune happens to him, it is because of some hidden machinations of white folks. On the other hand, the masters and the master's sons have never been able to see why the Negro, instead of settling down to be day laborers for bread and clothes, are infected with a silly desire to rise in the world, and why they are sulky, dissatisfied, and careless, where their fathers were happy and dumb and faithful. "'Why, you niggers have an easier time than I do,' said a puzzled Albany merchant to his black customer. "'Yes,' he replied, "'and so does your hogs.' Taking then the dissatisfied and shiftless field hand as a starting point, let us inquire how the black thousands of Doherty have struggled from him up toward their ideal, and what that ideal is. All social struggle is evidenced by the rise first of economic, then of social classes, among a homogeneous population. Today the following economic classes are plainly differentiated among these Negroes. A submerged tenth of croppers, with a few paupers. Forty percent, who are metayers, and thirty-nine percent of semi-metayers and wage laborers. There are left five percent of money-renters, and six percent of freeholders, the upper ten of the land. The croppers are entirely without capital. Even in the limited sense of food or money to keep them from seed time to harvest. All they furnish is their labor. The landowner furnishes land, stock, tools, seed, and house. 
and at the end of the year the laborer gets from a third to half of the crop. Out of his share, however, comes pay and interest for food and clothing advanced him during the year. Thus we have a laborer without capital and without wages, and an employer whose capital is largely his employee's wages. It is an unsatisfactory arrangement, both for hirer and hired, and is usually in vogue on poor land with hard-pressed owners. Above the croppers come the great mass of the black population who work the land on their own responsibility, paying rent in cotton and supported by the crop mortgage system. After the war this system was attractive to the freedmen on account of its larger freedom and its possibility for making a surplus. But with the carrying out of the crop lien system, the deterioration of the land, and the slavery of debt, the position of the metayers has sunk to a dead level of practically unrewarded toil. Formerly all tenants had some capital, and often considerable, but absentee landlordism, rising rack-rent, and failing cotton have stripped them well-nigh of all, and probably not over half of them today own their mules. The change from cropper to tenant was accomplished by fixing the rent. If now the rent fixed was reasonable, this was an incentive to the tenant to strive. On the other hand, if the rent was too high, or if the land deteriorated, the result was to discourage and check the efforts of the black peasantry. There is no doubt that the latter case is true, that in Doherty County every economic advantage of the price of cotton in market and of the strivings of the tenant has been taken advantage of by the landlords and merchants, and swallowed up in rent and interest. If cotton rose in price, the rent rose even higher. If cotton fell, the rent remained, or followed reluctantly. If the tenant worked hard and raised a large crop, his rent was raised the next year. If that year the crop failed, his corn was confiscated and his mule sold for debt. There were, of course, exceptions to this, cases of personal kindness and forbearance. But in the vast majority of cases the rule was to extract the uttermost farthing from the mass of the black farm laborers. The average metayer pays from twenty to thirty percent of his crop in rent. The result of such rack rent can only be evil, abuse and neglect of the soil, deterioration in the character of the laborers, and a widespread sense of injustice. Wherever the country is poor, cried Arthur Young, it is in the hands of metayers, and their condition is more wretched than that of day laborers. He was talking of Italy a century ago, but he might have been talking of Doherty County today. And especially is that true today, which he declares was true in France before the Revolution. The metayers are considered as little better than menial servants, removable at pleasure, and obliged to conform in all things to the will of the landlords. On this low plain, half the black population of Doherty County, perhaps more than half the black millions of this land, are today struggling. A degree above these we may place those laborers who receive money wages for their work. Some receive a house with perhaps a garden spot, then supplies of food and clothing are advanced, and certain fixed wages are given at the end of the year, varying from thirty to sixty dollars, out of which the supplies must be paid for with interest. About eighteen percent of the population belong to this class of semi-metayers, while twenty-two percent are laborers paid by the month or year, 
and are either furnished by their own savings, or perhaps more usually by some merchant who takes his chances of payment. Such laborers receive from thirty-five to fifty cents a day during the working season. They are usually young, unmarried persons, some being women, and when they marry, they sink to the class of metayers, or more seldom become renters. The renters for fixed money rentals are the first of the emerging classes, and form five percent of the families. The sole advantage of this small class is their freedom to choose their crops and the increased responsibility which comes through having money transactions. While some of the renters differ little in condition from the metayers, yet on the whole they are more intelligent and responsible persons, and are the ones who eventually become landowners. Their better character and greater shrewdness enable them to gain, perhaps to demand, better terms in rents. Rented farms, varying from forty to a hundred acres, bear an average rental of about fifty-four dollars a year. The men who conduct such farms do not long remain renters. Either they sink to metayers, or, with a successful series of harvests, rise to be landowners. In 1870, the tax books of Doherty report no Negroes as landholders. If there were any such at the time, and there may have been a few, their land was probably held in the name of some white patron, a method not uncommon during slavery. In 1875 ownership of land had begun with 750 acres. Ten years later this had increased to over 6,500 acres, to 9,000 acres in 1890 and 10,000 in 1900. The total assessed property has, in this same period, risen from $80,000 in 1875 to $240,000 in 1900. Two circumstances complicate this development and make it in some respects difficult to be sure of the real tendencies. They are the Panic of 1893 and the low price of cotton in 1898. Besides this, the system of assessing property in the country districts of Georgia is somewhat antiquated and of uncertain statistical value. There are no assessors, and each man makes a sworn return to a tax receiver. Thus, public opinion plays a large part, and the returns vary strangely from year to year. Certainly these figures show the small amount of accumulated capital among the Negroes, and the consequent large dependence of their property on temporary prosperity. They have little to tide over a few years of economic depression, and are at the mercy of the cotton market far more than the whites. And thus the landowners, despite their marvelous efforts, are really a transient class continually being depleted by those who fall back into the class of renters or metayers, and augmented by newcomers from the masses. Of one hundred landowners in 1898, half had bought their land since 1893, a fourth between 1890 and 1893, a fifth between 1884 and 1890, and the rest between 1870 and 1884. In all, 185 Negroes have owned land in this county since 1875. If all the black landowners who had ever held land here had kept it, or left it in the hands of black men, the Negroes would have owned nearer 30,000 acres than the 15,000 they now hold. And yet these 15,000 acres are a creditable showing, a proof of no little weight of the worth and ability of the Negro people. If they had been given an economic start at emancipation, 
if they had been in an enlightened and rich community which really desired their best good, then we might perhaps call such a result small or even insignificant. But for a few thousand poor, ignorant field hands, in the face of poverty, a falling market, and social stress, to save and capitalize $200,000 in a generation has meant a tremendous effort. The rise of a nation, the pressing forward of a social class, means a bitter struggle, a hard and soul-sickening battle with the world such as few of the more favored classes know or appreciate. Out of the hard economic conditions of this portion of the Black Belt, only six percent of the population have succeeded in emerging into peasant proprietorship, and these are not all firmly fixed but grow and shrink in number with the wavering of the cotton market. Fully ninety-four percent have struggled for land and failed, and half of them sit in hopeless serfdom. For these there is one other avenue of escape toward which they have turned in increasing numbers, namely migration to town. A glance at the distribution of land among the black owners curiously reveals this fact. In 1898 the holdings were as follows, under 40 acres, 49 families, 40 to 250 acres, 17 families, 250 to 1,000 acres, 13 families, 1,000 or more acres, 2 families. Now in 1890 there were 42 holdings but only nine of these were under forty acres. The great increase of holdings, then, has come in the buying of small homesteads near town, where their owners really share in the town life. This is a part of the rush to town, and for every landowner who has thus hurried away from the narrow and hard conditions of country life, how many field hands, how many tenants, how many ruined renters have joined that long procession? Is it not strange compensation? The sin of the country district is visited on the town, and the social sores of city life today may, here in Doherty County, and perhaps in many places near and far, look for their final healing without the city walls. End of chapter 8